Hello, everybody. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Christopher McKee, founder of the PRS Group. PRS is the world's leading quant-driven geopolitical and country risk forecasting and rating firm. Their firm's clientele includes the world's largest institutional investors, sovereign nations, transnational companies, central banks, and leading research scientists at institutions such as Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and LLC. Cited as a leading organization investment risk analysis by hedge fund investor Jim Rogers, and as the most authoritative in the field by leading academics, PRS's risk-driven investment portfolios have produced returns of over 20% with less risk and volatility. Dr. Christopher McKee has been featured in outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, CNBC, and has just written a very fantastic book I all highly recommend you check out called Quid Perculum, Critical Risk in the Age of Technology, which he co-authored with Peter Marber from Harvard. Dr. McGee, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Awesome. So I'm going to put you on the spot right away. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about what's going on in November, who's going to win the elections and how it's going to affect the economy. Based on your insight, what are you seeing currently in the polls? Well, first off, there's a couple of things. If, if you look at these primaries, right now we're at a very, very early stage. And, you know, who, who's leading and who's not leading really isn't indicative of what's going to happen. Um, you know, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago and somebody asked me more or less the same question. You know, where do you think this is going to go? And I said, you know, I remember back in 92 and I was still a student at that time and the Democrats were doing their primaries and it was February and I was up in Montreal and it was really, really cold and it was a very sunny day. And I can't remember who the front runner was at that time. It might've been Gary Hart, but I'm not clear, but there was a guy named Bill Clinton who I think was sort of in fourth place. Yeah. And he was in fourth place, you know, and he had a little sort of bushy Afro and he had a Southern accent. He was just a governor from Arkansas. Nobody really gave him much hope. Um, he did okay, you know. So I think what, what there's a couple of things I can say is, you know, you're going to have to wait a little bit of time. Nobody has a crystal ball. Super Tuesday is going to be huge here. And, you know, I watched clips of the Democratic debates last night and they've got strong candidates. They really do. I mean, they're varied in their approaches. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is not a Mike Bloomberg for sure. And I'm really quite surprised at how much staying power Bernie Sanders has had. But he tells a good message and I can understand where it's coming from. The thing you'll see though is right now they're all sort of staking out their territory and you've got a Democratic Party that's not quite like it was even 10 years ago. There's a lot of you know, disparate elements within there. And I think all of these candidates are looking for their, their, their support. But once it's decided who it is, and I honestly don't know who it's going to be, I have a feeling it will be a much more moderate candidate than what we're led to believe right now. But honestly, it's difficult to say. But nonetheless, no matter who it is, whether it's a Saunders or Elizabeth Warren or a Mike Bloomberg or anybody else, they're going to temper their policy positions. And they're going to be much more you know, centrist in their approach and they want to distinguish themselves. Sorry? Why would that be? Well, that's just the way politics is. 
you know, you have to stake out your your ground in the party. You have to make those kinds of um, I wouldn't call them inflammatory comments, but you have to make it known where your policies are, and you need the media attention. So you know, you can say things about healthcare that may or may not work out in the long run, but you know, one really needs to you know, you can't be invisible. Let's put it that way. You have to play the media. But again, you know, you're not just once you get that nomination, you're not just looking at appealing to a, a party base you're looking at appealing to a, a, you know the politically relevant sections of the country and to do that you have to you know temper your rhetoric a little bit and become a little more mainstream trump did it clinton did it clinton clearly did it and i think that's been the history so to answer your question in a rather long-winded way we don't know um you know who who's going to win but right now once that democratic primary is settled you'll have a much different outlook and i think trump will be a very um formidable opponent i don't think it's going to be uh, a slam dunk for a democrat in any way so with that being said i mean you have people like elizabeth warren talking about really really high taxes for the super wealthy do you mm -hmm. think they will rescind some of those policies if they do win yeah so simple as that. It just doesn't work. I mean, you know, up until those changes were made, let me put it to you this way from a business perspective, up until the changes that Trump made a couple of years ago, you know, the U.S., there was, there was you know, a lot of ways that you could reduce your taxable income. But on a corporate side, they had some of the highest tax rates in the world, okay? And, you know, there was a lot of companies that were relocating overseas. Ireland with 12.5 was a favorite destination. And even Canada, you know, I think Burger King relocated up there for a while. Um, they had a much more favorable tax regime, at least on the corporate side, than the U.S. does. The difference was is that, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an army of accountants and lawyers that we use down here you know, to, to make our tax returns as efficient as possible. So, you know, I think once you start tinkering around with that, you're going to come up against the harsh reality of a very powerful corporate sector that does have options, you know, that does have alternatives. And relocation is not such a difficult thing anymore. Right. So I don't think, you know, once you start to tinker around with higher taxes, and if you're looking at a base in the Midwest or in those industries that, um, you know, can't really absorb those kinds of cost changes i think you know the the rhetoric or at least the inflammatory parts of higher taxes will come down to earth a little bit um the, you know the u.s corporate system is is not terribly transparent i agree with you but i don't think higher taxes on corporations are really where it's at i don't think that's going to fly sure because they could always move somewhere else then I think that's part of it too. I just I think there's other ways to raise revenue than, than dinging the corporate sector. That's all. I mean, you have to understand too. It's not just the corporate sector is not just you know multi-billion-dollar corporations. With I mean, these are also I mean smaller entities too, and mm -hmm. even smaller. I mean, they pay the same rate, so they're getting dinged just as badly as anybody else. There are no real exceptions, as there are in Canada, um, for smaller companies on the corporate side. So you know you can talk about raising capital or sorry raising taxes on corporations, but it's the same corporation that has four employees as does the you know the one that has five thousand or, or or more it's all the same and then in these big corporations you have a lot of people obviously that are employed by them so it'd be very scary if these corporations got up and left 
I don't think they would get up and leave. It's just one of those things that you don't want to touch. I just, you know, they've been talking about it for years and it's just really, it doesn't really fly. So, you know, unless there's a political advantage to it, and there might be at some point, uh, you know, with some voters, there's different ways to, to raise revenue without attacking, you know, corporations. And there's, there's all kinds of ways. If you want to get into discussion on tax systems, I can certainly do that. But there's a whole world out there that does raise revenue without destroying its corporate sector. And it does so in an intelligent way. Um, it's called consumption. You know, you can tax consumption. You don't necessarily want to tax productivity or investment. That's not what you want to do, but that's a different story altogether. Right. And you do a lot of consulting for very big hedge funds like, uh, say, Bridgewater, for instance. Mm -hmm. So how do you do your analysis when you look at, you know, international politics? And how much of it is quantitative? How much would you say is qualitative? Well, in the end, it's all quant-based or it's all quantitative. We have a couple of proprietary methods that we've been using for a long time. We tweak them once in a while, but essentially the quantitative stuff is, is clear. We look at growth, inflation, budget balances, current account, debt flows, and so on. Those those numbers are derived from a lot of you know publicly accepted and transparent figures. We do a lot of in-house econometric modeling, but on the political risk side where those things are a little less easy to quantify, we do quantify the qualitative by creating what we would call um, you know, risk bands. So in other words, if we're going to assess government stability, we'll come up with a couple of, of areas where if you put into those areas what I would call qualifying criteria, you're going to get a much better idea of the relative risks. And we can talk about those a little bit later on, but the key is, is to ensure that bias as much as possible is removed and that there's a sense of comparability across jurisdictions. Got it. Yeah. And then how do these funds take this information and deploy it in their portfolios? It's yeah, go ahead. No, it's it's tough to say what they do um, because everybody uses them differently. And, um, you know, those are also company secrets, too. So nobody's really going to tell you exactly. But I can give you some examples. Um, AccuVest is one of our clients and they're out on the West Coast. And I, I remember reading an article in Barron's where they, you know, took a look at their, I guess, country exposure. And they had a number of different categories. So they looked at value, they looked at momentum, they looked at um, risk and a couple of others. And they buy our stuff every month. And I think their idea is to look at those countries that are becoming either less risky or that have hit such a, a rock bottom that they're really a bargain. So when you stack them up against a momentum and value and other um, parameters for making an investment decision or at least an exposure to a country, that's one way at least one firm uses it. Um, we have a lot of sovereign wealth funds that um, rebalance their portfolios every month. And, you know, they don't really tell me what they're looking at, but they phone me up and they ask for clarification all the time. And they say, you know, you've got this number for this particular country. Why is that the case? And then we'll have a discussion much like we're having right now on why that is. And in most cases, they agree with it and say, OK, well, that's terrific. That's the insight. So, again, you know, I don't really know you know, the ins and outs of every single client we have. We've got quite a few, but I can give you some basic ideas. But, you know, generally speaking, they input their data in their own trading models or their own, you know, uh, portfolios, and they use it as they as they do, you know. Got it. Okay. 
texts oh. are coming in as we speak. I'm sorry about that. Sure. Are they clients? Because we can pause yeah. if they're clients. We'll pause. No, no, we don't have to do a we don't have to do a client call on top of this. It's fine. <laughs> um, going back to Bridgewater, yeah. Ray Dalio made an interesting point last year on 60 Minutes where he said, "Because of the current wage gap here in America, we are in a state of national emergency." Would you agree with that statement? What do you think? Personally, I would say yes, because whenever there's such a disparity between income, there's usually conflict when you're going back in history. I think the closest yeah. example. Give me an example. And the reason I'm putting the question on you is that, you know, you're from a, I wouldn't call it different generation, but you're a lot younger than I am. Okay. And I think that argument really resonates well with a lot of younger guys. It really does. So I'm asking you first, what do you think? Do you think Ray's got some, some credence there in what he says? Or do you think it's just something that, um, you know, needs to be considered from a different angle or perhaps is a little more nuanced than what he would say on 60 Minutes? So my first intuition is, because it's Ray Dalio, I have to agree. It would be hard <laughs> to disagree with him. But he gave some interesting points. He was looking back in history and the closest example that he brought up was what happened in the 1930s during the Great Depression and how there was conflict between the lower and upper class. Yeah. And he was drawing examples from that. Yeah. Well, let me put it to you this way. I mean, I, I think the gap between, at least in, at least in this country, between the haves and the have-nots, it's clearly it's increased. You know, if you go and look at other jurisdictions, if you go into Latin America, for example, I mean, Mexico a long time ago in the 1960s and 70s had a pretty vibrant middle class. That's pretty much disappeared. Okay. You know, so you have sort of a lower to lower middle class and then you have some very wealthy individuals. The same thing I think is happening in this country. The problem is in terms of looking at it, um, how would I phrase it? It's much easier to okay, making those. Let me back up. Making those arguments a year ago, when uh, say the market wasn't doing all that great in 2000, the end of 2018, or something like that, was probably easier to make. Um, everybody did really well last year, so I think even you know the ones that come from or people that are in a lower social stratum tend to do okay. The other thing you have to figure out too, or at least put into the equation, is that we're in a very good employment situation in the U.S. Right. So you know if unemployment were up in the seven, eight, nine percent area, I think that argument would have a lot more resonance than it does now. Um, you know. I think inequality is out there and I think it is something that has to be addressed. And I think maybe that's where a lot of the Democratic candidates are getting their fuel right now. But sure. I think you can address it in ways that are different from looking at simply wages. Okay. I mean, one of the biggest costs that most Americans, and I think this is where a lot of the inequality comes from, or at least it makes it worse, is in terms of some of the um, costs that we have to bear for, say, health care. I mean, it's very expensive in this country. And, you know, Bernie Saunders made the point last night, and he's absolutely right. Apart from one or two countries, and I can't remember which ones he cited, the U.S. is really the only system or the only country out there that has a purely, and I'm not talking about government entitlement programs, but a purely um, private health care system. You know, every other country either is single payer, i.e. the government, 
or has a nice blend, you know, where its general provisions are applied by or supplied by the government, but you know, an individual can insure for travel or something like that. The U.S. really doesn't have that, and those premiums keep going up every year. And this might actually get back to the question you talked about in terms of, you know, higher taxes. Um, you know, a lot of companies pay. 60 to 70 percent of an employee's health care and if you want to add to those operating costs by a higher tax burden and that puts even more pressure so you right. know if you're talking about inequality I, I wouldn't equate it to the 1930s i think there's two things here i think you know the cost of living in this country regardless of 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 um you know the employment situation and so on is really high i think there's ways to reduce those costs and, and reduce the inequality by reducing some of those out-of-pocket expenses. But the other thing I'll add to you too, and this is I think important for, and I think this is where he's coming from. I mean, there's a whole generation of millennials out there that can't afford stuff. You know what I mean? Like houses are pretty much out of reach for a lot of people. Sure. And it's ridiculous, you know? I mean, I remember when I was in my 20s, you know, I thought prices were high then. I mean, that's just absolutely insane right now. And, you know, there are in Canada, for example, and this is one of the reasons they've tried to keep prices down, you cannot get a loan unless you cough up 25% now. That's crazy. You know, I mean, if you're looking at an average house cost near Toronto, that's going to be seven or $800,000, where are you going to come up with 200000 bucks? You know what sure. I mean? It's a lot of money for a guy in his 20s or a couple that are just starting out. So I think that's a better way to look at it, is that yes, there's inequality. Would I call it a crisis? No, but I think there's you know you're you're really undermining a, a class of people or a generation that want to do um, things and realize things, and you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I think he's right. I don't think you can equate it to the 1930s, but I do think that there is inequality and it's growing in this country and i think it's growing in parts of other other parts of the world but it's growing for reasons i don't think are essentially what was the case in the 1930s would you say it's harder today to move up the income ladder so as if you were in the middle class it would be harder to get in the upper class as opposed to maybe when you were graduating college no i think it's the same honestly same. Yeah, I think there's I think there's more opportunities now. I think the competition is a heck of a lot stiffer than it was in, in my day. But I think there's a lot more opportunities just simply because business itself and, and so on have become much more globalized. It's much easier to work, you know, remotely or through you know through computers and so on. I mean, you know, when I started this business, there was no well, not quite. It was there was really no internet. I mean, there was, but not really. Mm. You know. And sending emails. I remember teaching at the University of British Columbia. Somebody said they sent me an email, and I said, "So, <laughs> supposed to find it because there was like some central computer somewhere where you had to go in and log in." And you know, I just said, "Why don't you just pick up the telephone?" You know, it's a lot easier. But you know, the point is, is that you know, I think the competition is greater now than it ever was. But I also think the avenues for different types of work and the, um, how do I phrase it, the reception for work from other countries is much better than it was ever than ever before. So as an example, I get CVs from, from potential analysts from all over the place. I mean, I rarely get them from the U.S. for some reason, but I get a lot from Europe, you know, and a lot from the Middle East, you know, guys and girls looking for jobs as risk analysts and so on. And I have no problem hiring them because, 
they can work remotely. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's a little bit easier. But again, it just depends on your field. And, you know, obviously there's been changes. Very cool. Okay. So we're probably going to have a lot of young people watching this interview. So is it okay if they send you their resumes? <laughs> yes, you can go ahead and send me your CVs. Awesome. Okay. And while we're on the topic of economics, yeah. what do you think about rates right now since they're so low? I mean, there's a lot of talk that a recession is eventually going to happen, right? Because the market does work in cycles. Mm -hmm. And if corporations run into trouble as they did in 2008, do you think the Fed is going to be able to lower rates even lower than they already are? Yeah, no. I mean, I, yeah, they've got a little bit of room. And, and I think, you know, this is what happened a year and a half ago when, um, I don't know if you recall that or not, but the Fed was on sort of a tightening cycle. And, um, you know, the market went into a spasm. Trump got into play and he kind of jawboned, um, you know, the Federal Reserve to lowering those, those rates. And they didn't lower them by much. It was a couple of percentage points here and there, basis points, but it was enough to get things going. You know, other, other jurisdictions have hit pretty much rock bottom. I don't think the U.S. is going to get to negative rates. Um, and I think they have a little bit more to go. But, you know, the reason I'm stalling is I recall about three years ago, the, you know, the consensus opinion was that monetary policy wasn't going to do it. It was going to be fiscal policy. You know, we had to spend. If we're going to grow our way out of, you know, a mess or some kind of a recession, then we had to do things like infrastructure plays and so on. And, you know, that's starting to come around again. But for some reason, that was abandoned. And everybody went back to the monetary policy. And I always thought the central banks were out of powder, you know, or gunpowder, whatever they say. So, you know, it's difficult to say. I think the U.S., the central banks got a little bit. I think it can be effective. Um uh, you know, but at one point, I think if, if we do get into trouble, and it won't be the 2008 thing because it's, those are for different reasons. But, um, you know, I think I think governments are going to have to step up and, you know, spend a little bit more. And, you know, the thing is, if they borrow, the rates are so low. I mean, it's not really all that punitive. And I think this is the reason why so many governments have been able to take on debt relatively easy over the last couple of years is because servicing costs aren't really that high right now. So you said something very interesting. You don't see negative rates happening here in the U.S. as opposed to some places in Europe and even some places in Asia like Japan. Yeah. But do you think low rates is going to be the new norm? Yeah, I think so for a while. I really do. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I wish, I you know, you can go back 10, 15 years and what Greenspan was doing. And I know you weren't around, but, you know, back in 2004, four, five, and so on, when he was lowering rates every time there was an issue. I mean, people were warning, you know, you get to a point where, you know, they're going to become so low that it's going to be the new norm. And that creates imbalances as well. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we see a lot is, you know, um, income from, from, from bonds is, is awful right now, you know, and you really can't diversify a portfolio, um, even as an individual investor, when the returns on fixed incomes are just awful. They're just so low that they generate nothing. Um, and this is why I think the market has, has done so well of late. There's really nowhere else to put your, your, your cash. You see what I mean? But that's only going to go along for so long. Especially right? with easing because... If you're just continuously printing money, the value of your dollar is worth a lot less. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you take this down to a base level. I mean, you look at the price of housing, um, you know, it's up to where it was 
a decade ago. It really has. And I mean, it shook out. It was terrific in 2012 and 13, but the prices have gone back up in most places. I mean, you look at the cost of food. I mean, that's, you go to a grocery store, that's, that's insane what it yep. is right now. And people say there's, there's no inflation. It's like, yeah, well, when you strip out um, food and gas and things like that, because apparently they're so volatile, um, if you were to put those back in, I mean, there there is, you know, inflation in the economy is just not in certain things, you know, like electronics and so on. Those things tend to be, you know, cheaper as time goes on. Um, but I, I just don't know where it is. And I think, you know, this is a mistake that was made years ago. And it's, it's something that is going to be very, very difficult to reverse. You know, you shouldn't have financing costs that are just so low that it creates a lot of, you know, misallocations of funds. It really does. Right. And this is this is the situation we're in, and I honestly have no idea how they're going to get out of it. I really don't. Sure. Yeah. And you can see how the lower income class would be hurt, right? If they're holding on to cash, especially with an old mentality where you're thinking, I just need to save money, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have saving accounts that are giving you maybe less than 2%. You have inflation around three. So you actually lose money. Well, yeah, you're losing money and a lot of and people don't and a lot of people, I mean, most people in the U.S. don't have a lot of money to, to, you know, to invest after their paychecks. They just don't. And so, you know, when you when you've got X number of dollars and I know this is getting into kind of like a home economics discussion, but, you know, when you have only X number of dollars and you've got to go to the grocery store and, and feed yourself and those prices continue to go up and your health care costs continue to go up and your you know, housing care or housing costs rather tend to go up. There's not a lot left over. And again, you know, I don't think raising rates is going to, you know, you know, be the be all and end all. But I think if there was a higher cost of capital, it would have kept a lid on certain things. You know what I mean? It, that's just that's the reason for them in many, many cases. And I just again, I just think it was a genie that was let out of the bottle a long time ago. And nobody's really had the, you know, the political fortitude. Um, to do anything about it. It's it's a quick fix. So good luck. So if if you could advise people on what they would do with their cash, what would you suggest? <laughs> There's all kinds of things. I, I don't do a, you know investment advice over you know, I, you can talk to me about political risk, you can talk to me about, you know, certain sure. countries, but I'm I'm not gonna give you investment advice. I don't think anybody wants my investment advice. Okay. Um so Going back to the Fed, uh, you brought up an interesting point. There's a relationship between the Fed and, dare I say, the government. Do you think, I mean, some people argue that um, it's connected somehow. Some people say there are separate entities. But do you think the people in office have any influence over the Fed? Well, like I said, I think we saw that with Trump. And I think we saw that with the market reaction. Um you know, I, there, there's an independence in the, in the, in the U.S. system. I mean, other countries there isn't, but in the U.S. system, there is an independence, but they also have to realize that, you know, I mean, if there is, what do they call it, ticker tantrum or something like that, you know, when the market tends to go a little squirrely because rates are going up, I mean, there's not a heck of a lot that you can do. Um, you know, you can hang on there and engineer a recession. And I think that's what happened in the early 1980s when Volcker was continuing to, you know, crank up rates. Eventually, a recession came about and, you know, it flushed a lot of excesses out of the system. So recessions do have their value. They really do. 
But I just don't think anybody wants to face that right now. And they've been kicking the can down the road, and I think somewhat successfully for a while now. Um, but again, you know, we've been talking about this for a, you know, a couple of years now that a recession is imminent. And, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I just, you know, the U.S. continues to hum along. And there's, there's issues in the economy, but at this point in time, we continue to grow. So this, this formula continues to, to, to function okay, I suppose. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And just to wrap up, I'm going to ask you the hardest questions now. So if a liberal does win in November, say if yeah. Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, what do you see happening to the stock market? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny how you say that because I mean, anything could happen. I mean, you got to assume that they're going to win. And I think that's that's an issue right now. You got to assume that, you know, their policy positions are going to be uh, the same as they are right now. And that's those are huge assumptions. But I'll tell you one thing that's always fun, because we don't do this in the U.S. very well. We should we should look at other jurisdictions and what's happened. OK. And, you know, there's if you study sort of you know political leadership or anything like that over the years and you start to go outside the U.S., to some extent, you'll find that, and you know, Brazil is a terrific case where you've got, you know, where you've had political leaders in the past that have been very lefty in their orientation. I mean, Lula was was a great example, where you know he was a big union leader and he was going to stick it to everybody that was on the other side of the ideological spectrum. And once he got into power, I mean, things were tempered. You had to. That was what, you know, government was all about. It wasn't simply, you know forging ahead with your agenda and, and the hell with everybody else. It's about compromise. It's about coalitions. And it's about, you know, achieving policy that is, for the most part, balanced, because otherwise it's not going to work. So, you know, somebody from Bloomberg, I think it was, interviewed me just before Bolsonaro was elected. And, you know, there was all this doom and gloom. And, you know, he's, all hell's going to break loose in, in Brazil. And I said, well, you know, the Brazilian system is a little more decentralized, at least as far as the parties go, than the U.S. one. So the coalitions that need to be put together in order to get through anything, or to get anything rather, through Congress is complex. And this is what Bolsonaro, at least on the pension side of things, has done quite well. So, you know, the bottom line is regardless of who you elect and how, you know, inflammatory, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be, once the realities of governing occur, and in the U.S. case, you're going to have a Congress, presumably, that you're going to have to deal with for most of these things. Then, you know, those demands of power or those you know, requirements tend to temper most politicians. And I think this is going to be the case regardless of who's elected in the U.S. And we can see this as supporting evidence in, in other jurisdictions, whether it's in Brazil or, or any other place that we, we, we tend to look at. Okay. So it sounds like you don't see a massive correction. No, no, there's other things involved. I mean, you got to understand, Paul, I mean, you know, people really overestimate what a politician can do. OK, and they do that because the media needs simple things to talk about. Right. You've sure. got to have a story that has a narrative that people can understand. You know, people are not going to, you know, read something that requires a lot of thought. So you need a personality and you need a a story or a narrative behind it and it's easy to digest because that sells newspapers or online subscriptions and things like that but you know and most would agree it's like you know what, what does one person do really you know to change it to change a country 
It takes a long, long time. You know, I mean, Obama came to power promising hope and change. You know, some things were done, right? Mm. But a lot of people also had, you know, failed expectations. That was what I heard a lot. You see what I mean? Clinton was the same sort of thing. I mean, he, there was a lot of changes under Clinton's regime, but he also had eight years to do it and a really, really good economy, which made it really simple to get things done. And at the same time, he had a Congress that was much more um, cooperative than what we have right now. In the 1990s, I mean, the Democrats and the Republicans, for the most part, got along with each other. You know, they worked together and they did things. Right now, they just don't. It's become so polarized that it's very, very difficult. So my point of all this is, is that there's so many different pressure points and so many different realities about government that once, you know, one person or say somebody's elected as president, there's so many different things that have to be considered um, that simply saying, oh, my gosh, if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or somebody like that is elected, the market's going to shut down and we're all going to go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> It never happens and never will happen because that's not the way power is exercised. Got it. Okay. So it's going to wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. It's, you know, we had a really terrific connection for a long time and it just, uh, let's see what you can do. No problem. Uh, so we're back on. Um, Dr. McGee, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time and all the insight you shared with our audience. Okay. If you will, can you share with us your book one more time? Well, the title was Quid Curriculum, which is Latin for what this. There is a question mark after that. So the idea is, is that now that we've moved into a world where algorithms, machine learning, artificial intelligence is really taking over. The same thing has happened to political risk. And so, you know, now that we can quantify it, we can at least get an idea of what the relative probability of, a, of an event is. It's no longer an educated guess. It's no longer the opinion of just an expert. We can put some numbers to it and make some better decisions. Awesome. And I hope to get my signed copy soon. You will get your signed copy. Don't worry. Just send me an address. Uh, Dr. McGee, if anybody wants to reach you, uh, we have a lot of institutional investors that yeah. are watching this video. How could they get in contact with you if they have any questions? Well, they can go to prsgroup.com and contact us by telephone. They can contact us by email. They can contact us by fax. All the different ways. And all you have to do is find that contact tab, if you will, on the website and choose your avenue. Awesome. Thank you so much, and we'll talk okay, soon. Paul. Okay, Paul. Thanks very much. Good questions. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.